0: You know, what happens as you grow organizations is the requirements of leadership continues to change, and they become higher and higher level over time. And eventually, as a CEO, you're managing area leaders that are experts in their area. And in essence, they have control of their business or they're part of the business. And so your job is really just to make them work together effectively and make sure that the right things are happening. As I always say, leadership is really three things. It's strategy, structure, and people.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Do you think you're gonna stay retired even when I walk around with you, you know, you're so excited. We go downstairs, you show me the data center in the house. The excitement's still dripping off of you. The work, the idea of being in the work. I know you're not
0: officially retired. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm very retired right <laughs> now, to be honest. I'm, I'm pretty busy, actually. What do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, five boards. Yeah, I'm on five yeah, boards, yeah. and I te- treat those very seriously. I, they, each one of them takes a lot of time. And then I talk to more than a dozen, maybe less than two dozen CEOs on a regular basis, mostly CEOs. Sometimes they're chief operating officers or, but I do a ton of consulting. I would call myself an executive coach, actually. And
1: I should be very specific. When I say retired, I put it in air quotes. I mean, operating operating. role.
0: Yeah, I'm done with that. You think so? (laughs) I'm you done think with so? that. You think so? You know, I mean, partially I mentioned to you my wife has some medical challenges. Yeah. And, you know, I spent eight years traveling around and being home, you know, maybe three nights a week. Unfortunately, um, my daughter had gone to college at that point. I didn't do it while I had, you know, children that were still in school. But it was really hard on us. It was very hard to be traveling like that. And I am not good at doing an operating job anything other than all in. And I know it's an 80 plus hour a week sort of role for me. And I don't really think it's right for me to do that. It's just not the right time in my life to do it. And the other thing that's nice is that what I'm doing is actually great in the sense that I'm actually contributing to a lot of different companies and a lot of different people. You know, I have calls with, like I say, there's probably half a dozen people this week I'm talking to that are leaders of companies that are certainly companies that you would consider investing in and, and are known in the field. Most of them are small companies, often Either sub million in revenue or several million in revenue. I've been really focusing on early stage a lot, Series A sort of things, or even pre-Series A seed sort of level. Yeah. It's interesting. I keep getting earlier. I think that happens. You just drift earlier in time over. Who would have thought the Bob M- Muglia, right? Muglia. Muglia, Muglia or Muglia. Yeah. Either one, every, it's, so it's Muglia I is was correct. To... If you really want to be honest, Mulia is correct. Okay. That's what, if I was in Italy, when we go to Europe, we call ourselves Muglia. Okay, And even an Italian restaurant, we, we say yeah. Mulia. But in the U.S., we were always known as Muglia, Muglia, eh, whatever I answer. Who anything. would have thought Bob Mulia,
1: a manager of... 30,000 plus people from Microsoft is now getting pulled into like seed stage companies on investing.
0: It wasn't quite that many, but now (laughs) Scott's got a team that big, but my team was about 10,000 at the time. But you know, it's obviously very different. You know, there's so many things I learned at Microsoft that apply to these companies. And then what I didn't learn at Microsoft, I learned at at either Snowflake or Juniper. And a lot of things came from my experience at Snowflake, where we're going through the early stages of starting a business, building a sales team, thinking about how you focus on product-led growth. And and when you introduce that, I just had a conversation with the CEO today encouraging him to move forward sooner on that. You know, these are all things that are really valuable to people.
1: When you see... CEOs that you're advising going down a path, and look, every business is different, but there's definitely some paths that are wrong, (laughs) like obviously wrong. Do you get tempted or frustrated in the seat now to want to get your hands on the wheel and be like, no, 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 you're going down the wrong street here. This is a
0: one way road. I try and help them, obviously. You know, it varies based on my conviction. To the challenge that they're facing. If I think they're absolutely wrong, I will tell them they are absolutely, you know, that, that I say literally don't do that. I've been known to say that to a CEO. In fact, it was, you know, a, a company that has actually done very well this year that last year I had a conversation with them about their pricing model. And it was not the right idea. I mean, it was, they were going down the wrong path and, you know, they adopted a more snowflake-like pricing model and they're now doing very well with that. They're growing very quickly. If I'm really convicted, if somebody's doing the wrong thing, I'll tell them don't do that. And here's why. I always will tell them why. You know, the other thing I think I'm well known for is I am known for thinking aloud. People who worked with me over the years would tell you that I was very transparent in my thought processes. And I only have a few plays in the playbook. There's only so many tricks of management I've understood. One of my favorite is a weekly meeting where you have a meeting with a team to drive forward on a key issue and you bring together stakeholders across the organization to help solve a problem that's honestly just a hard problem you're trying to figure out where the answer is not obvious. And what I've always found is that iterative process where you bring together between say four and 10 people into a room and you talk about the issues and you talk about the current problems they're having and you do it on a regular recurring basis. For most issues, weekly is a very good cadence if it's a, if it's a material issue for a company because it allows for a significant amount of progress to be done between meetings, but not so much so that time drips. For more critical items, you can go to three times a week or even daily if it's an urgent problem, like a system outage sort of problem or some kind of major PR fiasco that's going on, the technique I've always moved to then is a more frequent meeting, even like a daily meeting. But again, the key idea is, is that you bring together a group of people who work on a hard problem or a set of hard problems and come up with a solution together.
1: What was the last problem that you had a daily meeting for?
0: Oh, or was, the- um, undoubtedly that was an outage of some kind not of like That was some kind of system problem and a custom- I mean, we only went to daily meetings over customer issues pretty much.
1: What are some of your other tricks in your be- Well, you said you have a few favorite
0: tricks. What, like uh- That's a good one. I mean, that's a very good one. That's tried and true. It's a very tried and true one. And it's a really a very basic people management one. You know, in general, I would say that well, probably my most important trick—it's not really a trick; it's a basic management concept—that I encourage every company I work with is to focus on establishing their values and defining their values for the company. And as I say to them, unless it's published on the website, you don't have any values if it's not up, if they're not up on the website. And my view is that values can be guidelines to help employees understand how to do their job. Not what to do, but how to do it. And there's, that's the two parts to it, right? There's the what, which is all about the performance of an organization and the results that are driven. And then there's the values, which is about the how. And historically, companies have focused almost entirely on the what. But in today's modern world, particularly technology companies, I think the how they accomplish things is really as important as the what and in some senses those two are very much in balance together what we saw at snowflake and and I look I learned this it's not something we came up with ourselves you know this is these are known techniques that have been around for a long time and certainly other great leaders like Jeff Bezos have done this with Amazon's leadership principles you know you talk to any Amazonian and they will tell you that they live by those leadership principles now not everything about Amazon I'm in sync with, okay? The way they treat employees and things like that are not necessarily the way I would operate. However, they are a very values-based and principled organization and I respect that. What I mostly respect is the way that Jeff put a focus on the customer and on, on really ensuring that you do the right thing by the customer. And we very much incorporated that into the values of Snowflake. As I said, good values provide direction to an employee. So it's not just a couple words. To me, it's what are the one or two sentences that sit below the words that describe the meanings of the words. The example I always use in Snowflake is our second value. Our first value was put the customer first, which is relatively straightforward, and we really lived it. The second value was integrity always. And if you look at the words in the Snowflake values under integrity always, you'll see that it's all about conflict resolution. And it's about encouraging constructive conflict and then having people follow when decisions are made. Why did we put that under integrity? Because it's when is integrity an issue? It's when there's conflict. Integrity is easy when there's no conflict. It's only when there's conflict between people or organizations. And that's when the point, the behavior becomes important. Yeah. You wrote a book, The Datapreneur. When did it come out? A few weeks ago? It came out June 13th.
1: June 13th. Labor of love, I have to imagine.
0: More work than I thought it was going to be. That's what everybody
1: <laughs> that does a book says, uh, and they usually don't want to do it again. Not, like, not dissimilar from not company. Not in the short
0: term, anyway. <laughs> that's right.
1: One of the things that struck me was that the book opens with basically you saying, I got fired from Snowflake. And as I was thinking more about this, I'm like, gosh, you got fired from Snowflake after an incredible run, and Frank Slootman replaced you, and then you got fired from Microsoft... And Satya replaced you. Does that hurt more, or does that help the sting? <laughs>
0: it, 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 it helps, I guess. And that's and that. In that oh, look, let's go through this. In a way, I was fired twice by Steve. Let's let's Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer. Yeah, my first time I got fired by Steve was in 2001. I'd been working for him for a couple of years, and he was CEO at the time. He had become CEO, yes. Okay. He, he had fairly recently become CEO. And I was running a good part of the MSN organization, uh, including Hotmail and Messenger, things like that. And that was the time when Steve shifted Microsoft to a PL structure where he moved to multiple PLs run by division leaders. And I was the logical guy to run the MSN PL in some senses, but Steve didn't want to do that. And so I went from about 3,000 people working for me to one in a 24 hour period and I did not want to leave Microsoft at that time I really wasn't ready to do that so I took a role working under Jim Alchen in the in the platform team as an IC No, my admin came with me. I had one person, it was my admin. And uh, Edie and I went and I started a new business essentially from Microsoft, which was a storage business to focus on building network attached storage, kind of competing with NetApp primarily. You know, we had a base with our, our file server and everything else. And so I began this business and I really, I learned actually quite a bit about, it was kind of a fun situation because I built a little Separate team inside a much larger organization, how
1: many people were you managing at that
0: before you I was at three thousand. then I went to one. and then in this storage team, I built that up to probably fifty or something but, like that. But
1: why did he do that? Why did you not honestly, see AI? if You honestly
0: are really honest about it. It's the value. If you really get right down to it with Steve and I, I mean, I have a ton of respect for Steve Ballmer. I uh, learned an enormous amount from him. He has very different values than I do, really. Yeah. It really comes down to values. And so, you know, for the next number of years, I kind of hid at Microsoft. I went under Jim Alchin, who, you know, I'm still friends with Jim. I just saw him over the weekend, in fact. And Jim and is? Jim Alchin, ran, he was president of the Windows team at yep. the time. And he was, had managed. I'd worked for him before for a number, uh, actually a couple of times before. And so I went and took this new role under him, built this team up. And then not too long after that, I picked up this, the systems management group. And then I picked up the Windows server group. And then ultimately I picked up the rest of the server and tools team. So I went, and ultimately I was again at about 10,000 people when I left Microsoft. And for about five years, four or five years while I was running the team, I either worked for Jim Ulchin or for Jeff Rakes. Jeff was over in the office group. We actually moved my group over there. And I have to admit that- so while they are flying were, too close to the sun? There were honest business reasons to move the team <laughs> But the honest to God truth is I didn't want to work for Steve and I wanted to stay one level away from Steve, (laughs) to be clear, because I would watched my career. I'd I'd worked for Microsoft for like 16 years at that time. I struggled mightily for two years and kind of got fired once. And then for the rest of the 14 years, I was a star. And the correlation with directly reporting to Steve Ballmer was one to one. (laughs) So when... Jeff left Microsoft. Jeff was working for Steve Jeff Rakes and he's all-time Microsoft person was there for from the very early days. Very good senior guy. I had no choice except to report to Steve. And I remember vividly, I, you know, I was working out in the, in, in the local gym there and I had a workout partner, Tracy. And, and I remember vividly seeing Tracy that morning it was announced and Tracy said, hey, Bob, congratulations, you report to the CEO. And I said, Tracy, don't congratulate me. The clock starts ticking today. <laughs> and it went off three years from later when, you know, I was having some, you know, it's again, it's just seeing eye to eye between people and that's what caused it, so.
1: Why didn't you just quit? Like most people would take that as quite a fuck you
0: the first time.
1: The first time.
0: Yeah, the second time I did. The second to be time clear, you the did. The second time I did. Yeah, but the first and
1: time you got demoted quite meaningfully.
0: Yeah, I did and it was very public too. It was in the Wall Street Journal. I mean it was quite it was quite public. But that's what I mean like but, it was designed but, but it was as actually, a fuck you in some was, ways. It was designed as Look, I have to tell you, I don't see it that way at all. I mean to be honest with you, being a senior manager Steve did, whether he was right or wrong, he did what he thought was right. And his job was to run the company. That was what he cared about. And for whatever reason, he didn't want me in that role. Now, over time, I mean, I got back into that role and I worked very closely with Steve over the years. And again, we started to have, you know, probably conflicts associated. Ultimately, it was about people. In the second case, it was really about a particular leader that we had a disagreement over. And I felt like this leader needed to go. And Steve said, well, no, he's not going to leave. In fact, you're going to leave. But what happened, which is kind of interesting, is, as I said to Steve, I said, you know, he's not going to stay unless you give him my job, and that would be a disaster. And so that didn't happen. And Steve asked me who should run the server and tools division. And I said, really, there's only one person in the company, Steve, that that should do the job, and his name is Sacha. And so Sacha took the role for me. I had the early conversation with Steve in December, and then this was not announced until January. That was really kind of hard. And then when it was announced, my replacement wasn't announced. Satya got announced in mid-February, and at that point, he took over immediately.
1: And maybe hearkening back to my original question of, like, why didn't you leave the first time, independent of whether it was right or wrong from their perspective or yours, there's so many opportunities out there. Sure there
0: are, but there was so many opportunities potentially inside Microsoft and I wasn't ready to leave. I mean, yeah. I, I was a Microsoft guy. I wasn't ready to leave. I That's mean, I, fair. I would have, the truth be told, if time had gone differently and Satya had gotten the role running the company before I left, I'd probably still be at Microsoft today. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably still be there today. Yeah. And how
1: closely were you working with Satya at the time? Satya now CEO of Microsoft.
0: He was in a different division. He was Meaning doing why did you point to him? because I was I knew I knew the company I mean I've been there 20 years 22 years I knew all the senior leaders I knew every single leader inside but the company What about him he had the balance that was needed to run an organization as complex as Servant Tools. Servant Tools is a complicated organization because it was was made up of many products. So it wasn't like the Windows business or even the Office business, which is kind of one product. I mean, Office is is collectively one thing Mm -hmm. almost. Servant Tools is very different businesses. The, The tools business, the Visual Studio business, very different from the server business, very different from the database business. And so you need a leader that has the ability to think through ac- across those kinds of dimensions and satya had all the right characteristics yeah well it turns out right he well he was very right to say the least because the guy's done an incredible to say he's done an amazing job at microsoft would be an understatement of it's all like time.
1: a steve jobsian
0: renaissance yeah i sometimes think of him as yoda the industry's yoda i think he's the senior thinker inside the he industry he has the demeanor of a yeah, yoda he too, does he me. actually does yeah. he actually does yeah where did you grow up grew up in michigan and what was
1: conversation like for you at the dinner table?
0: When I was when, when it, you when were was growing, growing up.
1: up? And I ask this question because I have a strong and fervent belief that many values are actually passed along at a dinner table in families. Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. And so it's actually a stark correlation from conversations at the dinner table to the type of person that you are today. Meaning for me my dinner table conversation was very achievement oriented and it was my mom and stepdad talking back and forth about work, you know, and I, so I always heard about work and then the the questions that they would ask me were oriented around school and performance and grades and sports.
0: I wonder for you, what, what was it like? I would say it was not as directed and focused as that was. I wouldn't say that. My mom, was; she came into this country. She was three years old when she immigrated from Germany. So she was a first-generation immigrant. My dad was a son of a first-generation immigrant. So both of my parents' families were recent immigrants in the 1900s. And they very much were a product of World War II. My dad fought in World War II. He never talked about it. He was wounded in Italy. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't really talk about the war. But it clearly had a huge impact on, on my parents. And as it did on every person of that generation. And I think it's left a huge impact on me as well. How? Just because you realize the fragility of the world and how the peaceful nature of the existence we have is actually a fragile thing that could change at any moment. And certainly seeing what's happened with Ukraine in the last year or so, year and a half. And perhaps just as concerningly, even more concerning, Taiwan potentially. I see times today having some similar analogies to what my parents went through. So I think I was very much felt that way. I think they were reasonably frugal. My father was a salesperson. He was mostly independent. We always were middle class family. We never, I never was hungry or anything like that. Later on, as I got older. My father did a little bit better. They were able to put me through college, for example. But I grew up in a world where money was considered important and was relatively tight all the time. So I think that's had an impact on me, although maybe you wouldn't know it based on my spending at Snowflake, but uh, <laughs> the idea of being thoughtful about how you spend money. And you know and, and I think there was a desire. I was the first generation of my family to go to college. So neither of my parents had gone to college. My dad went into the war and he didn't go to college afterwards. My mom certainly never did. So that was fairly different. Although I'd say my parents were quite articulate and well-read, they were not intellectuals in the sense of having had college degrees. Yeah. What was your first job? What was the first time? It doesn't have to be a paycheck. Maybe someone handed you cash. What was the first job you had? Oh my gosh, let me go back to when I was twelve or thirteen. Then to cutting lawns or whatever. I remember doing that. My first real job was flipping burgers at the local burger joint. <laughs> um, I was fifteen when I did that. When I got a car at sixteen, I mean I was living in in the country in in Michigan. The nearest decent-sized town was. 10 or 15 minutes away. And so when I got a car, I got a job at the local movie theater and I wound up taking a job at a gas station and I, and I'd start, and I continued on that while I was in college and I then got a job almost relatively quickly within a year or so Year and a half after going to, to Michigan, I got a job working for Condor Computer, which was based in Ann Arbor. And Condor was one of the first relational databases. I wrote about it in the book. It was built on this Z80 Cromemco microcomputer. So I was building software basically for relational, basically building an application, software for a customer. And I was essentially consultant doing that work for several years when I was in college.
1: When I read about you in the papers and online. It's interesting because there's this Twitter account that I follow. It's basically in court cases, there is emails that come out, texts and emails. And they're fascinating because it gives you an under the hood look at Steve Jobs, you know, and they're talking about Steve is telling Bruce at Adobe, like, hey, I thought we agreed that it just even... I'm looking at even the minute markers of how long it takes them to respond. It's just my version of fiction. And it's surreal because I see your name. In some, of these, in some of these. Is that
0: weird for you? I mean, some of the things that- Well, Lord knows my name has appeared in emails. I mean, it was part of the whole DOJ thing. You night- were the last witness I was Microsoft. I was the in- last of the 12 witnesses that testified to Judge Jackson in the DOJ trial. In the, and, in the antitrust case. In the antitrust case, yeah. And there were a lot of emails that I had to answer for. Let me tell you the number of emails that that, that David boys put in front of me and said, Mr. Muglia, this email, blah, blah. How crazy was that? It was totally crazy. You must have thought you were living in La La Land. Well, we were really, we were in La 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 Land. We were in La La Land because we didn't know that it was already, I mean, we thought there was a court case going on. And in fact, The decision had been made before. I mean, it was basically made before we even started. By the time I testified, Judge Jackson had long since made up his mind. I'm certain of that, that that we were guilty, that that Microsoft was guilty and he was going to throw the book at us. Yeah. And we were the only people that didn't know that. And it turned out that the reason, that at least one of the reasons why the press was, you know, so clear about this is that Jackson was talking to them and they knew, they knew what was going on. We just didn't know what was going on.
1: Yeah. Can you tell... Because I think it is very instructive, especially with a lot of the things that are happening in today's regulatory environment with businesses. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a definitely a younger cohort of people that probably don't even really know what happened in this. Oh, for sure. Can you can you tell the, for this for sure? They the don't. story.
0: So when the internet happened in the mid 90s let's say 95 when Netscape started gaining momentum Microsoft saw that it was really important to build a browser into Windows they definitely saw it as being a competitively important thing and Bill very well-known memo called the internet tidal wave I'm pretty sure it's been published about a million times where Bill talked about how the company needed to shift its entire focus towards the internet which it did I mean, which it did, and and there were this weekly meeting. Bill had these weekly meetings, even daily meetings. Sometimes they talk about learning. Where did I learn this from? I think I learned. I could have learned it from Bill, even um, in that experience, because he would do that. And I remember going to Bill's conference room on a you know very regular basis, talking about how Internet Information Server would work, you know, how these pieces could all fit together. Because parts of the technology I owned and controlled, including at the time Internet Information Server and the language, the whole language world, the Java world, and what was going on there, because I was running Visual Studio. So we were in the middle of all this and Microsoft built a very effective strategy to incorporate it in in the browser in and frankly took a fairly aggressive posture in the way we did it and kind of got the industry's back up against us. And and that's what brought ultimately the lawsuit against us. And, And it was brought by our competitors, Netscape, Sun and Oracle primarily. And they were very successful in rallying the government to bring this antitrust suit against us. And that happened in the 2000-2001 timeframe, and then it was in 2001 where Mike, where the judge ruled against Microsoft. Shortly after that, a agreement was reached. It was called a consent decree between Microsoft and the government that involved us doing making a number of commitments to what we did with the browser, which Microsoft did over the years. Sort of out of left field, it also meant documenting all of the Microsoft protocols that turned out to be one of the requirements that we had agreed to with the consent decree with the government so that started and then you know, my story on this is that two years later or so give or take this is probably 2004 or so I was in Hawaii and I was working at the time for both Jim Ulchin and Kevin Johnson who I actually reported to again when I was as a Juniper because he ran he was CEO of Juniper and then for a while he was CEO of Starbucks more recently but I was working for Kevin at that time and I was vacationing with my family in Hawaii and I vividly I remember getting a phone call from Kevin and Kevin saying to me, Bob, I don't know what's going on. There's this technical committee that the feds have, have got looking over our shoulder on this protocol documentation. And they say the documentation is just not up to snuff. It's just garbage. You know, I talked to Jim Ulchin. He says there's 16,000 pages of documentation and it's all fine. <laughs> so can you sort this out? So I get back a couple days later and I called in the person that I most trusted, which is Henry Sanders who is still at Microsoft. He's a great guy. At least the last I saw, he was still there. Henry literally wrote the TCP IP stack for Windows. I mean, literally, Windows. It's running it today, I'm sure, on some of his code. And he had been involved in protocols, really, since the beginning of Microsoft working in networking. I hand Henry the 16,000 pages of documentation on a Friday afternoon. I say, Henry, can you look at this over the weekend and tell me what you think? And we come back on Monday morning, and I say, what's up, Henry? And as I sort of feared, he says, it's shit it's all shit to which you know our attorney who was managing the consent decree kevin who was really fun guy you know one of the most fun loving attorneys i've actually ever met pretty funny guy actually he he looks at me and says well it may be shit but it's compliant shit and you're gonna you pointing to me are gonna fly to washington on thursday and tell the doj and the judge why it's compliant." So at that point, I make up, I invent this idea that it was a documentation project, and we thought that it was a documentation project, and we were compliant in that. But in reality, it turned out to be an engineering project, and so we didn't realize that, and so we need to take a reset. Well, that worked. But it then meant that for the next three years, literally several hundred person years of effort, engineering effort, were put into building the world's finest protocol documentation ever, government managed, approved by the technical committee. You know this perfect protocol documentation, and, and I was involved in working with the DOJ and the judge. I flew back to Washington every quarter and presented to the judge our status for about three years. So I paid my penance. The net what is I paid my was penance. Ish. 2007, 2008,
1: and you were gone. 2011. 2011. Did that scar
0: you? It's one of the best experiences of my life. Why? Well, uh, first of all... the the, Come on, getting
1: in a suit and flying to D.C.? That was great.
0: It was such a good experience. It was such a good experience in the sense that it broadened me in a way that I've not been broadened normally. Talk about a stretch experience. I mean, that was a real stretch experience. Now, I would say the court case was misery, just pure and utter misery in every way, shape or form. You know, being in front of David Boyes and Judge Jackson in a court case we lost, that was just miserable. Working the protocol documentation, you know, it's funny the people involved. I mean, I still know all these people that I worked really closely with, and we talk about it all the time. It was, you, we went through a war together, basically. Totally, it was like you go through a war together, it's like a and we were successful. I mean, partial. I mean, why was it? Why was it fun? We succeeded. We the protocol documentation was finished people were assigned to other tasks ultimately and Microsoft's no, no longer under the consent decree so it was fully successful we did exactly what we needed to do and you know it was a real team effort from a lot of it's just like anything else you build it here's why it's a team of people all working together to solve a problem
1: did you internally up until the verdict was made think you were going to win
0: Many people certainly did. The lawyers certainly all did. Bill did. I mean, Bill. You know, Bill made one crucial mistake with this with this thing, and it's one of the things I learned. Bill, long. Bill Gates. Gates yeah. Bill Gates. Bill thought it was a legal case, and it, antitrust is not about the law because the law was made at the time that that the law came out of that case. Antitrust is also always ultimately about politics. And I've come to realize that the poli- that understanding the political situation is the most important thing and managing the political situation is key. Now, Brad Smith, to his credit, I mean, boy, did Microsoft learn this in the best way. And Microsoft has largely avoided government scrutiny since we went through the nightmare. And Brad in particular, such as fabulous too, but Brad in particular, who is a president at Microsoft and really runs all of that for the company, has done an incredible job. He's really like an ambassador, in a sense, in the tech industry. And he's done an incredible job in managing that.
1: And what was Bill's involvement in the business? It sounds like you and Steve had your disagreements. Was Steve given the reins completely?
0: Yes, he was. But Bill was involved during that period as the chief software architect. So Bill continued to do project reviews and things. He was actively involved in running the company. That was one of Bill's tougher periods. Right after we lost the case, the person that was the hardest on for sure was Bill Gates. I mean, because Bill went from literally the darling boy of the tech industry to the devil incarnate. And what, you know, what Bill was able to build for and the media jumped all over it as they always do. Yeah. Right. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, people, the media builds people up and then they knock it down. That's part of the way society seems to work. And now Bill, fortunately, you know, he's A lot of things gone since then, but unfortunately, building his foundation and all the things he's done for the world in terms of the Gates Foundation, I think he's, he's been very, very positive. But, you know, it was a time where we all learned a lot. The industry was very young back then, in a sense. And we didn't know. I mean, we didn't understand fully the values that the industry would expect from a leader. And I think if you look at what the mistake that Microsoft made when they were, a leader in the industry, we still acted like we were a scrappy startup that could do anything we wanted, and it turns out that that's not the case. You have you you held to higher standards at a certain point.
1: The day of or day after the court case ruling, what would you do? I go, what, what, what did your pity party look I, well, like?
0: Well, it was it was tough. I mean, you know, I was, I recall vividly what we called the chain gang when we held the press conference to talk about the loss. You know, the lawyers and Bill and Steve got up front, but what they did is they took the whole leadership team of Microsoft and myself included, and we all walked out on stage. We were all standing behind there. And we called it we normally called it the chain gang afterwards that were there. You know, it was tough. I mean, obviously we recognized how challenging that situation has been, had been, and recognized. we need to, And you know, at that point, I think that finally the senior management figured out how could they reconcile with the government. And it wasn't too long after that, the, the consent decree came out. You know, and I think the best blessing that it gives the industry is, is that you can't fight the U.S. government and it's better off trying to figure out how to make peace with them. And I think that's a lesson that Microsoft taught the rest of the industry.
1: When you look back at your experience there, this is a weird
0: question, do you look back on it fondly? It was an important growth experience. As I say, the protocol documentation, I think I look back. I mean, all of Microsoft. Whole, oh, Microsoft? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, Microsoft, I'm convinced that my memory of Microsoft is rose-colored and that I'm very good at remembering the positive times and putting all the negative fights and everything else behind, you know, and forgetting about it. So, absolutely, I, I have a very positive view.
1: Well, and, you know, not to dig too deep, but it kind of reminds me of the what you talked about with your dad like the conversations about the war were not happening you know that those were compartmentalized, yeah. and you look back retrospectively, and you just think about the good. Yeah, that's you a-
0: retrospectively compart- maybe that's why maybe I c- can do that. But you know, you know, the fact of the matter is that I'm still actively involved in Microsoft. I still do consulting for them. I, I mean, I have a consulting relationship with Scott Guthrie, and I talk to leaders there and help them on their data team, the work they're doing with their data team, and in that way have a chance to reach out and talk to Sacha every now and again. So I'm still pretty well connected to it. You know. Microsoft is a great company. It like all great companies, it has a complex history. A lot of great things, few things that are not so great. But I also look at what Satya's done to the company and and I think it's been fantastic in the last 5.
1: Uh, um one more like r- r- random question. How many times did you almost quit Microsoft? How many times did you ever like uh Never. Never.
0: Not you once. You knew this was your place. I mean generally speaking, I mean I was Microsoft was home to me for so long. Yeah. You know, and I was fairly embedded part of the company for a really long time.
1: Yeah. Was it funny or awkward or weird when you joined Snowflake, then Snowflake rose to meaningful prominence? And in some ways you were friends and in some ways you were probably a little bit of frenemies with Microsoft at the time. That must have been just a funny relationship for you because the Azure business was and is incredibly important to Microsoft. What Snowflake is a SQL
0: server business. Is,
1: that's right. And what Snowflake is doing is, in some ways, growing the pie for Microsoft, but in other ways, Microsoft has a native service that they would prefer their customers to use, rather than Snowflake. That must have been a funny two worlds to hold at the same time.
0: Yes. I mean, in a sense, it was. I didn't feel like I owed Microsoft anything. Let's put it that way. I, plenty of, I, mean, I certainly had every right to go build a product that competed with Microsoft in the industry. And the fact that we were successful in doing that, you know, I view as a, just a purely positive thing. I had a, We had a good relationship with Microsoft when I was there. Microsoft was actually a pretty good partner of Snowflakes. They were doing a lot of cross-selling for us. That ended literally the day I left, and the posture shifted to be much more competitive. Ironically, and maybe more importantly to Snowflake, I might argue that this is in the end, this has benefited Snowflake. I had a very negative relationship with the leadership at AWS, largely going back to the fact that Andy and I tangled a little bit when I was running Windows Server. He was true. This is absolutely true. Where was Andy? He was running AWS. He's starting AWS. Yeah. And now CEO. Yeah, he's now CEO of Amazon. AWS runs Windows and they license Windows from Microsoft through an OEM contract to do that. And as they were starting out in the early days, Andy wanted to run, obviously, they licensed EC2 at the time by the hour. Now it's by the minute or the second. It's actually by the second. But at the time, it was by the hour. And Andy wanted me to give him an OEM license that was by the hour. And the problem with that is at the time, Microsoft was licensing Windows to many hosters. There were literally, back in the early 2000s, there were literally over 30,000 companies around the world hosting Windows. And we were under consent decree. And so anything I gave to Amazon, I had to give to everyone else. And so I couldn't move that fast, if that makes sense. And Andy got frustrated with me, and I don't think he ever kind of forgave me for that. So he was very unhappy when I was building Snowflake. More pissed than Microsoft. Actually, because I think Redshift was his baby. That makes sense. And we were going after Redshift. Snowflake took out hundreds of Redshifts. I mean, a lot of our early business was Redshift replacement. And so Andy didn't like that at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. But
0: but fortunately, I'll say at the same time when Frank took over and the Microsoft Mm -hmm. relationship froze over and became poor the amazon relationship thawed and they actually built a very good relationship and now i'm hopeful i keep trying to help microsoft and snowflake work together and i'm hopeful that something will happen there
1: how big was the company when you joined snowflake yeah i was employee number 34 and you went from juniper you went from microsoft to juniper Mm -hmm. and then i joined snowflake and you were like sec basically second in command at juniper
0: No, I wouldn't say that because Kevin was running the company. Pradeep, the founder was still there. Yeah. Okay. So he was very much actively involved. I ran the software group at Juniper. And there's there's a hardware group and Stefan Dykeroff, who's actually now at Sutter. He's a he's a partner at Sutter. Great guy. He ran the hardware team. I ran the software team. So I had a small part of the company. And and the challenge with Juniper was You only spent two years there. Right. And I only spent two years there because, you know, the company was trying to Kevin was trying to build a meaningful software business. And you know, trying to do that in a hardware company is very hard. And what happened is, is that Juniper's growth slowed down. And it's almost impossible to build a new business inside an existing company when they're not growing. Yeah. Because the primary product still demands the resources. And so it was a constantly complex situation. And so I knew that that wasn't a long-term.
1: And humor me. When you were leaving Juniper, you must have definitely taken your time to figure out took six months. Six months. And you wanted to make- Five I mean, months. You had a great run at Microsoft. You had a misfire at Juniper. Call it whatever you want.
0: But it, it wasn't- It actually wasn't a misfire in the sense that it was through Stefan that it got me to Snowflake. It was that connection. So, you know, in like I say, things tend to go happen for a reason if you allow- No matter what happens, and I've had a few things happen over my career- when a door closes a door often will open and if you're open to it opening it opens sometimes in ways you don't expect and in this case it was my connection from juniper that led me ultimately to snowflake
1: that makes sense but the actual job and role itself wasn't a great fit it wasn't fit. A good yeah, fit. it wasn't a great fit
0: the company wasn't it wasn't in the state that I thought I'd hoped it would what be what
1: other jobs because the snowflake 34 employees had That does not fit any of my pattern recognition for the job that you would take. If I were advising Snowflake at 34 employees, you would not be the logical choice that I would say yes. It was a risk for them, actually. Yeah, of course it was a risk. I mean, the number one mistake that startups make that's almost trite at this point is don't hire the big company person. You know, They need all the resources and blah, 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 blah. What else were
0: you looking at? I had been interviewing at the time with Citrix, and the CEO role was open in that company. And I knew Citrix very well. They were a partner of mine when I was at Microsoft, and I I knew Mark Templeton, who had been CEO for a long time. So that was another familiar kind of place to go into. But every time I talked to the board at Citrix, I felt heavy if that makes sense. And it's like, there's so many challenges inside the organization because the product line that they were built, you know, the product line that was, again, the money-making product line for the company, which is virtual desktop, was not going to be the future of the company. And can you actually transition it? I didn't see that as a good choice. I was looking at other small companies, actually. I was mostly looking at, I wanted to build something. One of the things I came to the conclusion of is I don't want to fix something that somebody else had built. i Tried to do that at Juniper and I came to the conclusion that that's not the fun I want to have. Some people love doing that and that's great if they do. But I decided that I wanted to build something. And so I wanted to go to a smaller company that was really focused on doing that. And I was willing to get my hands dirty. And I did. I mean, I was more of an individual contributor for my first year at Snowflake.
1: Did you have to prove that to the Snowflake team? Because to your point, you're right. It is very risky to hire you. I mean,
0: they. Sure, I did. And. It took a little bit, but it wasn't bad. I mean, the good news is the Snowflake team was such a great group of people. Benoit and Terry and Marchine had you know, created such a fantastic organization of people. Nancy, who was the office manager at the time, still a very close friend. I just emailed her yesterday. She was just marvelous. And Nancy was one of the best people I've ever come across. And so the team had a group of really wonderful people. And you know, that said, we had our challenging people too. And I was involved in it. I mean, I remember very vividly, Going for a walk in downtown San Francisco with one of the DevOps engineers who was struggling at the time, and I mean, those are conversations I hadn't had a conversation like that in years because most of the conversation I'm having is with senior managers who then manage a manager who manages a manager who manages a manager who talks to this person, and you know, here I am talking to to him. And, was that weird? It was, but it was it was it was kind of fun. I mean, I mean, I pulled out of my hat my old <laughs> knowledge from when I was a first line manager and. I did a little bit of that, but mostly I didn't. Most when, of my job was- When
1: did you think, because I imagine, you know, a lot of these people at the company are missionaries, you know, they're startup martyrs. You had to earn their respect, I imagine as well. All the 34, or 33 people that were there. When do you think you earned some of the team's respect to think, oh, this guy is willing to get in there with us and go to war, go to battle?
0: I think it was pretty quick, actually, because it was the summer of 2014 the product was in an early early stage of beta, you'd call it an alpha even, you know the database, the snowflake database, the code that they wrote was production quality code. but the infrastructure environment it ran in was all scaffolding at the time I got there. Benoit was leading the project to move to the global services infrastructure that still runs snowflake today and put in place all of the database and everything that was around that. And I was working pretty closely with him on that and you know I had had enough experience with services because I did run the Azure team when I was at Microsoft for a year and I ran the you know ran services in MSN so in a way I had a little bit of credibility on that and some knowledge and then you know the other thing is is that it wasn't too long after I got into the company that I realized that the engineering process that they were running was not going to ever ship <laughs> and we ran these two month milestones they're like a two month sprint almost and at the end of that you you. know, you, we, I was looking at what they accomplished. I went through a couple of them and I looked at what they accomplished and they didn't accomplish most of the things they set out to accomplish. They did a lot of other stuff that seemed important, but not what they said they were going to do. And there was no clarity inside the organization no about what it would take to be production ready. So I drove that process at the company. And I think by doing that, I surely earned their credibility because for the next six, nine months, we together as an organization went on a mission to ship the damn product. And I realized that the only thing the the salespeople or anyone else cared about was shipping and the status of the product. So I turned our weekly company meetings, which I had every Monday at one o'clock, I turned that into a project status discussion where I literally called on the engineers. We literally went through the project and I would call on the engineers and, you know, and say, Hey, you said you were going to get the two factor authentication in place by, by this. Are we there? We checked that in. And you know, well, no, we're still getting it. And so we'd go through it and actually, we went through this process together as a company and were able to ship in June and then begin growing the business.
1: There was zero customers when you joined.
0: There weren't zero customers. There was zero revenue. There was zero revenue. zero revenue. We had a couple of customers in beta and the first two deals, Chris Degnan had begun the negotiation of.
1: Chris Degnan, our mutual friend, the now CRO of Snowflake, originally oh, yeah. rep number one.
0: Yeah, he was. Chris was the first rep at Snowflake and he's hired everyone since then, which is pretty astounding. Got to give Chris a lot of credit for that he's grew from the very beginning to building a very large, large organization. But Chris had had actually defined the first couple of contract structures and he, you know, it was very different than the snowflake pricing that we know today with credits. It was very physical in its orientation and I got in immediately and changed that. I, I said no to that. Now the first two deals were too far along so we actually closed those two deals the way Chris had, had defined it and then later flipped them over to a yeah, more fucking standard Chris contract. is
1: just making up pricing. He out just of made app. it up.
0: He just made up. He said he just made up. He said he didn't know what he was doing he had no ego associated with it he was so grateful that i came in and told him what to do and i really did i came in and told him what to do why didn't you ever fire chris because why would i ever fire chris he was doing such a great job i was told by my board to fire chris that's why i ask
1: because it is by the way it's the same reason you got fired in my opinion I, i don't know i wasn't inside the company but at some point the company reaches a scale where it's time to bring in well, the they adults say It's in the time room.
0: to bring it in. and and that and, was very and much. I'm
1: sure people were telling you all the time, like, "Oh, the opportunity cost of not doing it's very high."
0: The mentality of the snowflake board was, and probably still is, very much at a grow as fast as you possibly can. And be willing to spend money to do it. I mean, there was a willingness to fund the company pretty richly in order to allow it to grow very rapidly. The logic was, and Mike Spizer said this early on, and he was totally correct in saying this, was that this is a gold rush time. Somebody is going to win this business, and it'll either likely be Amazon or Snowflake. And, you know, basically, you know, what Mike said, and he was really right, is we have to get distribution before Amazon gets product. Because the Redshift product was not up to the snowflake in its capability, but Lord knows Amazon had distribution and we did not. So that's why we built the sales force at a very rapid rate. You asked about firing Chris. I think it was 2017. It could have been 2018. It was right at Christmas time between those years. And I remember it vividly because it was on Christmas break and I was down at a... I was like inside one of those Michaels or something like that. It was like right after Christmas, you know, you're going to Michaels, like all the Christmas decorations and stuff around. And I get this call from Mike and we have the discussion about moving Chris into the North American role, running the role of running North American, hiring a replacement to run global sales for Snowflake. And so I was confused because I'm like, what has Chris not done? He never missed a number. He'd never missed a single number ever. And he was very effective. one of the best recruiters I'd ever met and a very good manager. I wasn't sure what he wasn't doing. And ultimately having gone through, I actually created a matrix of roles. I said, there are different roles. And I said, let's talk about this. There's a VP of sales and there's a CRO. They're similar, the CRO is more senior, there's a chief customer officer where you would typically pick up like a product support or something like that. And then there's like a chief operating officer or a president where you're going to pick up even more. You'll pick up marketing and potentially more things. And sometimes people call it COO and have sales reporting. Sometimes they call it president. So we're talking about these different roles. And I said, well, we really I don't think we really need a president or a chief customer officer. What we really need is just a chief revenue officer, somebody to drive the sales part of the business. So I, we talked about what the requirements for that role was. Like, you didn't have to know marketing or anything like that. I mean, to work with marketing, but you didn't have to be a marketing expert. And ultimately, what the board came down to, I said, you know, what are the issues? Should, what are the, the things they care about? And what the board really cared about was, could Chris hire senior leaders? And in particular, could he hire a world-class VP of North America? And I said, well, well let's give him a try. Let's see what he does. And, and so we found a candidate that everybody on the board and everyone agrees was like a really great candidate. And Chris hired him. So I'm like, he did it. And he worked for him for a number of years. I mean, very successful. I mean, the guy's no longer there, but that's, that's beside the point. And Chris did his job perfectly. And through that, the board agreed to make him chief revenue officer. Now, To be honest with you, it's really a statement and a testament to Chris that he was able to grow that far. And it's an even stronger statement that he was able to transition from a manager like Bob to a manager like Frank, who's a very different manager. I mean, Frank's style is very different than mine, and Chris is successful.
1: Chris, you hear that? By the skin of your nose. Yeah, (laughs) barely. What was the first time in Snowflake that you had a daily stand-up, a daily meeting? What was the first near-death system-type thing where you had to get the troops rallied every day. Well,
0: ironically, the first time we had our first major outage that really hit us happened on Christmas Eve of 2014. I mean, it's very vivid. I mean, I remember the outage. What happens is one of our engineers had checked in a bunch of stuff. We didn't have all the processes in place and things. And An engineer made some fairly major changes, which had downstream impacts and eventually took the system down literally at like 9 p.m. on Christmas Eve. I had the whole blasted team on the phone. It was Christmas Eve. And as I said, the only person who's supposed to be working on Christmas Eve is Santa Claus. and, And here we were. So that was the first time we did it You know, it was mostly inconvenient largely because of the timing of it that it was Christmas Eve. Shortly after, probably the first true near-death experience, which was very much a near-death experience, was shortly after we had GA'd in 2014. I believe it was August of 2014. I remember it vividly because we were having a sales summit that day. So I had the salespeople gathered. I believe it was up in the city in San Francisco. We didn't have a big sales team, but, you know, whatever it was, 15 of them or whatever was there. And I had to go talk. And the system went down a half hour before I left, like 20 minutes before I left. And what had happened is inside Snowflake, there's a database called Foundation DB that's a transactional database. And that is the heart of Snowflake. That database, every transaction, Snowflake is committed into that database in some way. And if that thing stops the patient dies. It's just that simple. And it had stopped. It had frozen up. And so Snowflake was just completely dead. And I remember my head of developer operations saying to me, I was literally, the system is down. FDB is locked solid. We don't know what's going on. We have no idea what's happening, or why it's done this. And I remember vividly my head of developer operations saying to me, the last thing he said to me As I was walking out the door to go speak to my sales team, to go rah-rah, my sales team, Jonathan says to me, FDB is non-responsive, and if we bring it down, I'm not sure it's ever coming back up again. And if that thing didn't come up, we were never coming back up again. And so I was like white. I was like, I remember standing, I saw Chris and I was like white, you know, and and I had to give this talk. And of course, all the salespeople are looking at their phones wondering what's going on. That was the heart. That was the closest near death we had, I would say. The other near death that was probably even more of an honest, true death that could have been was that in, in about that same time frame, slightly afterwards, we were built on Foundation DB, which is a sister company of ours. It was invested in by Sutter Hill as well. It was a great early database. It had some very temperamental aspects to it, but it did some things. It, what it did in 2014, literally there was nothing else that did. There was literally no other products on the market that you could replace it. What happened is that Apple bought the company. And the instant they bought it, they closed it, they took it off the market. I had fortunately gotten a heads up that we need to make sure we're secured. And I had implemented a contract when we did the contract on Foundation DB. This comes back to my legal experience at Microsoft. Does it help you a little bit? But I was relatively focused on the contractual aspects of things. And I actually got a contract in place that put a source code escrow in there so that if Foundation DB ever stopped supporting the product from Microsoft, that was the key word, stop supporting the product that we had access to the source code. And Apple did that. They stopped supporting the product. And to a miracle of miracles, the Iron Mountain source code escrow worked. And we got the source code and were able to keep FDB going.
1: You must have been shitting yourself.
0: You have to realize, if we had had to move off of FoundationDB, Snowflake wouldn't exist today. It would have been eclipsed. It would never have happened. Because I don't think there was anything to move to Back in 2014, 2015. And I mean, literally, I could go to Cockroach today. I could go to Fauna today. There's a few places I could go today, but there was no place to go back then. Literally, there were no products that solved the problem. And we forced, and what happened there, and again, I feel pretty good about this because I did the, the deal that pushed the source code escrow through. And then I immediately went to my guys. They're like, oh, we don't know this code. We're not. I said, your database guys, that we're a database team. If there's any group of people that can maintain this product, it's this team and we hired people we brought people in you know people that had eight database experts they learned the code fortunately foundation db had an incredible test suite an incredible test suite it was designed to be tested so we could validate what we were doing and it turned out that you know that thing that had frozen the system that was a bug in foundation db it had to be fixed there were other similar bugs like that that hosed the system that the team fixed over the years fortunately what happened is shortly before i left apple actually opened FDB. And although it was very complicated for Snowflake to move on to that source code, they're now completely on the open source code base and are, as I understand it, one of the largest contributors to FoundationDB.
1: By the end of the first year that you were there, how much revenue was the company doing? Do you remember? Ish?
0: First year? Uh, less than 200 grand. Less than 200 grand. How about the next year? Next year, we, st- we were probably approaching a million. Oh, n- not that much. No, and a lot of money into the company, too, over that period of time. You know, and in fact, by 2016, so the end of 2015, early 2016, I had to do a financing round. That was the um, B? It was really not more than the B. Yeah, okay. It was more than the B. And it turned out 2016 wasn't a terrible year all around, but the first quarter was rough. Not much was happening in, in the venture industry in the first quarter. It was right when I was raising money. And so I went out and, you know, fairly famously got 24 no's. You know, people told me no. You did? Uh, yeah.
1: That's news to me.
0: Number, you, it's really funny. The people who've, the venture partners have come to me said, damn, I wish, worst worst decision of my life yeah. that day. And I was able, my fortunately, my investors supported me and, it, and they did an extension round basically. And, you know, and then for the, in the next year, we really began to take off.
1: You were getting told no, because they just, the traction just wasn't matching. Not enough evaluation. traction.
0: Red, How can you beat Redshift? You're never going to beat Redshift. You, you, there's no way you can possibly win against Amazon. How can you possibly win?
1: And at that point, did you know,
0: was it clear to you? Yes, it was clear to me because the product was working. It wasn't clear until roughly early 2015 when Benoit's rebuild of the infrastructure came together. It took until the first quarter of 2015 for us to do a non-disruptive upgrade you know, which is kind of a requirement of any, any real product. It's very hard to do in a database. I mean, it's, hard, it's a complicated thing to do in a highly stateful system. And certainly for Snowflake, it was. And Benoit built an amazing architecture and one that, has, that the company used constantly. The number of times we failed backwards, you roll forward and then you fail back. The number of times we did that was significant and it always, knock on wood, it always worked. And then you went from a million to what? three, I believe.
1: And, then, Still and not, then, and then fifteen. Then that was the big off. year.
0: That was the big year. Yeah. Then it took off. That was when it, it was the next year. So a million. I was having trouble getting funded, and then three. I started, and then it really went.
1: And so you were there for the two hundred k, the million year, the three million year, the fifteen million year, the fifty to 50, 15 to fifty, and then to one eighty something like that. And then fifty to at that point, how fucking crazy was that?
0: The last year was like, the most Now crazy. it's
1: obviously the most valuable enterprise. Is it the most? Like I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. It's, One it's, of the craziest. It's,
0: it's got a good value. It's got a nice value. It's valuation. an amazing business. And I think that you know, while the stock was very highly priced shortly after IPO and for the first year and a half, I think it's at a rational price yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. It was totally crazy, particularly the 2018 year, because here's what happened. I mean, I, this is just true. I had my leadership team out here, And I had them up to, we'd opened the Bellevue office by that point in time. We knew, I wanted to get to Azure. I knew that there was nobody in the Bay Area that could even like log into a a Windows system. So nobody knew anything. I mean, literally, I had no one in my organization that knew Windows or anything. So the idea of building on Azure in Silicon Valley at that time seemed very complicated. So we opened an office in Bellevue and hired a bunch of ex-Microsoft people to help us run on Azure, which was a challenging port because Azure was relatively immature at the time. And I think Snowflake helped to actually mature it. But that year we'd opened the Bellevue office and that year around in the summer, I had an offsite for my leadership team here at my house. And we looked and we realized that This thing was going so fast, we just had to hire as fast as we can. That was the year we targeted to the build for a billion. And we targeted, I'm actually fairly proud of this, we targeted that we would achieve a billion by the end of, what was it, fiscal 21, when we ended in 2021, and the company actually hit that. And in order to do that, we had to just hire like crazy. There was nothing you could do except you you had to bring on salespeople quickly because there was a six to seven month time frame for those people to come up to speed and build a pipeline. And if you just worked it back, you had to have that many people. Because, you know, the thing is, is I learned this a long time ago. One of the, the things that's interesting is there are two denominators in essence in a small company about getting work done. There are engineers who write code and there are salespeople frontline salespeople, whoever they are, whether they're insider or, or enterprise. And those are your two elements of work inside your company. And essentially, everyone else is overhead to facilitate that and getting it done. And when you looked at how you grow an enterprise business from 100 million to a billion, you just had to hire salespeople like crazy. We had to grow engineering and other parts of the company. Coincident with that. But the primary thing was bringing on sales. And that's what we did. And it felt like a hurricane. Tripling. That year, we tripled our headcount. We went from 300 to over 1,200. And I felt like I was in a hurricane. Maybe I was. This is
1: the dream, right? Like this is everyone's dream. Did it feel like the dream that everyone makes it out to be?
0: Yes, in some ways. And it was also- What was was
1: the most surprisingly hard thing about it?
0: It's managing the people. It's always about ma- it's a, how do you manage a team growing that fast and how do you keep everybody aligned and how do you keep a team spirit in place on everything? You know, what happens as you grow organizations is the requirements of leadership continues to change and they become higher and higher level over time. And eventually as a CEO, you're managing area leaders that are experts in their area and in essence, they have control of their business or they're part of the business. And so your job is really just to make them work together effectively and make sure that the right things are happening. As I always say, leadership is really three things. It's strategy, structure, and people. It's a strategy that's an effective strategy. It's an effective organizational structure, and, it, and it's the right people to make things happen. And as you grow, and particularly as you grow quickly like that, Some of the people don't work out. And when they don't work out, they tend to cause a fair amount of problems along the way. And so you have to work work, work through all of that. And when you're growing that fast, it's difficult because you're bringing people on so quickly. And their experience of the company is so different than people who have been there for a lot longer that actually assimilating that and actually making it cohesive is very challenging.
1: And were you prepping for the next year when you got let go? Yes. You must have had your eyes on... I was totally focused on building
0: the business. Absolutely. You didn't Um, know. I didn't know. Until the day it happened. Until the day it happened. Maybe I should have, but I didn't.
1: And looking back now, do you think you could have done anything differently? I guess this is the question that I have. I'm sure this I of mean, course
0: in, in looking back, yes, many things I could have done differently. I mean, ultimately, you know th- that was like everything else. It's about a disagreement between people. I mean, it's ultimately about disagreement with at least some of the board members sure. and I. And I think the other part I think there were honestly two parts there was an active disagreement that was present, and then the other thing was is you know the board really liked Frank. And which I get and Frank became available. And I think once that happened, they moved very, very quickly. Yeah. The challenge with it was that I wasn't prepared for it. Right. And so it made the transition just more difficult than it would have otherwise been.
1: Yeah. I'm just putting myself in your shoes. It must've been even worse with the trajectory. Like you did all the hard, all the early stuff. I don't want to say all the hard stuff, but the early stuff you did the existential stuff, the stuff that maybe this thing's not going to work stuff. Now the business is rocking and rolling. It's about executing managing and growing it yes yeah. and they, which you is know, by the way that's stuff. by the way you could argue that's your specialty like that's- yeah that was the
0: funny thing about it is one might have imagined that i could have run a large company it wasn't like i was some startup guy some that's like 32 right. year old startup guy that had just you know i'd been doing this for a while yeah it's true but i think what happened here was literally snowflake was the most valuable company in everybody's portfolio or at least one of the most valuable, it still certainly. Is. And so, you know, when that happens, that I think the boards look a little bit differently at things. And again, they saw a manager that had successfully IPO'd two companies, and they went and with look,
1: that. In their defense, Frank's doing a great job. Frank's done a
0: great job. To his defense, he's done a great job. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad the company's where it is, and and we'll see. Yeah,
1: and you're better off for it.
0: Yeah, it was a little hard transition, but it, but it but you how, know how?
1: I mean, it must have been. Oh, it was very hard. It was very hard. Like I mean, like. Put me in your shoes. Like, what
0: do you do? What do you do? It was a, sort of a shock for several days because I literally just you're like, like morning. I just didn't see it coming. But what happened was after a couple of days, it was this is happening. I flew back up here on a Friday afternoon. That's when I literally moved from. California to Washington state again. And it was a very rough plane flight. I'll just say that. Um, what do you mean? I mean, I was just, that's when I was letting go, I was letting go of everything. And at that point, I sort of gave up and began rebuilding things and, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do really, because I wasn't sure. I, the only thing I knew is I, I'd move back up here. I wasn't going to live down in California. My wife was up here and I wanted to spend my time up here.
1: Yeah. Was there a period where it just like, it's like grief? Like it was, it didn't for, sa- I'd say
0: for five months, actually. I felt like we did a trip, we did a trip to Japan in that fall. This was April. And honestly, I think I got over it in that trip, ultimately. I mean, I feel like I came back from it. My wife had said to me, she made me commit to doing one thing, which was I would not take any roles at all for the rest of that year, for the rest of 2019. So I didn't accept any board positions or anything until early 2020. And then of course the whole world changed, right? The whole world went nuts in the pandemic, but I began doing board work at, the, at that point. And it took me a number of months to get over it. I was talking to people. I was, you know, working things through. I was still, you know, I was doing some things, but I was still searching. And then I think I came to the conclusion that I'd start focusing on supporting CEOs and really doing early stage things.
1: Yeah. You think you're over it now?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm over it now. Well, let me say, will I be fully over it? Never will I be fully over it. Am I beyond it? Yeah. But is it still there? Yeah, it sure is.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who did you go to when things happen like this? How did you deal?
0: Well, one of the things that helped me a lot was I had an executive coach. Really, really, really good, world-class, like a world-class executive coach. And interestingly enough, the board hadn't hired him. I hired him. Okay. So it wasn't like the board gave me a coach. You know, I felt like this thing was going so fast and crazy. I needed a coach. And so he was super helpful in the transition. And frankly, his perspective was that, you know, he had never seen anything. like He had, He said to me, you know, one of the things he said to me is this, he had seen 70. This was his 70th CEO transition. Okay. 70, 70. 0 And this one was unique. He'd never seen anyone quite like it, just because of the surprise of of it and the fact that that the trajectory was so positive. Usually there were so many signs ahead of time, and in this case, there weren't any.
1: What's the hardest feedback you've ever received?
0: I mean, there's personal feedback, certainly. I mean, there's both personal feedback and business feedback. Hardest business feedback I can ever remember, harshest business feedback I can ever remember, and it's very vivid in my head, was in the early, in the mid-90s when I was first told by a customer at Micro, That was in Microsoft, I was told by a European customer, a British customer, I was talking about Windows Server and how we did it, and he called me a monopolist. And I was so taken aback. He said, so you're a monopolist. And I'm like what do you mean? I'm, I felt very insulted by that. Now I understand what he means, <laughs> but it took a number of years. I mean, for, for me to, uh, so that's vivid in my head. The first time I was called, I was called a monopolist. You know, I think the thing I would say about me is that, and this is a conversation I certainly had with Ballmer, Steve Ballmer, many times when we would talk about us and, you know, the fact that, as I said, we're, you know, we're an old book and the pages are well-worn and probably my biggest challenge, honestly, and, and the place where I struggle the most is I like people so much, I'm not really good at firing people and I should move quicker. I, if you asked me one thing I would say in my career that I would do differently is I would try and put my personal feelings about a person aside more easily and do the right thing sooner. I was slow do sometimes. Do the right thing for the business. For the business, And exactly.
1: a lot of the time you conflated doing the right thing for the person
0: and even then, of course, it's often the right thing for the person actually to right. That's right. It, it is the right thing for the person. But that's where I'm probably not at my greatest strength. And and if you actually are really honest, if I'm actually really honest, and Chris Degnan will, if you if you talk to Chris about this, he'll tell you this. He was probably the guy that told this to me as cleanly as anyone had, which is that I am actually more of a leader than I am a manager. If that makes sense. Yeah. And Chris is a way better manager than I am. But I'm probably a better leader, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And he's a good leader, too. I don't want to say he isn't a good leader, but he's a really good manager.
1: Yeah. Can you draw the distinction?
0: Yeah. I mean, a manager is really focused on the business results associated with the people and the employees and makes the hard decisions associated with making that happen. And I was probably a little bit slow on that uptake on things.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Why did you write the book?
0: Because I had something to say honestly, that I thought that there was a history in the data world and there was a lot of a number of concepts that I thought were useful for people to know that would be helpful to put down in one place. The punchline when I started is different than the punchline that was in the book in the end because the world changed while I was writing the book. When I started writing the book, it was really about the importance of data and improving data to make businesses more effective and driving the digital economy, which is what I thought. There was always an arc of data innovation in in the datapreneurs from the earliest days, but it terminated in the digital economy in the early days. What happened while I was writing the book is that the timeline for artificial intelligence moved in by 50 years in my head. I mean, I thought this would happen in the second half of this century, long after I was off the earth. And all of a sudden, we're living in a world where the timeframes for achieving what we can think of as artificial general intelligence have moved into realistically within 10 years.
1: When that happened, you're what, halfway through the book? I was done
0: with the book, basically. It was really... I saw the beginning of it. And then what? ChatGPT came out? It was really the fact that when ChatGPT hit and how the world was just re- re- reacting to this that's when I realized that these things were all moving in and the watching the way my colleagues in the industry were responding to this because they were as astounded especially by it. at
1: Microsoft
0: they well you know I had heard this I had heard this from the Microsoft folks for some time because they were seeing it first but then when we all experienced it I think is when the dawning happened and you called your publisher Well, I hadn't had a publisher at that point. I was working with my co-author Steve. What I said to Steve is we needed to really refocus the end of the book because I really see the world changing very dramatically at speeds that I had never anticipated. And where do you see the world changing to?
1: What is it that you see? Like, why is this so profoundly exciting to you?
0: If there's one theme that's consistent in this arc of innovation that's been that I've witnessed throughout my career, it's the acceleration of progress. Things move faster today than they did Twenty years ago, and frankly, they're moving faster in 2023 than they've ever moved before. I mean, certainly, this artificial intelligence industry is moving at a speed like I've never seen anything mature before. And you know, just the explosion in innovation that's happening in the open source AI space with these large language models is very dramatic. And you know, for the first time, we have intelligence in a computer. And we have a computer that, my goodness, can respond to English. In thoughtful ways, English has become the primary programming interface of 2023. I mean, imagine that. its English is the primary programming interface that's emerged this calendar year. And probably more people are programming in English today. I mean, they're there will be more in the future. The fact that you can take and put intelligence inside an application allows problems to be solved that just couldn't be solved before. Like what? I mean, the one that I'm focused on in the short run is understanding the semantic model for a business. I think the world is going to shift over the next few years to what I talk about as business engineering. Today, we have data engineers. In the future, I think that career is going to be business engineering, and it's understanding the business process inside and out and defining the semantic model for that process. Every business has a model for how it operates. Where does that model exist? Well, it exists partly in the applications that run it. It exists largely in spreadsheets and people's code and people's heads all over the place. It's It exists in Slack messages and documents online. It's all over the place. And in order for us to build artificial intelligence systems that can respond and take action on our behalf, they need to know what our model for what things to do are, and that's why you need to have a semantic model. I've always believed that was possible, and now it's become, it was necessary, and now I believe it's actually possible to achieve with these large language models.
1: When these technologies proliferate in the ways that they are, are you optimistic, I still am. It's interesting. This is a That's period. a weird question. So can you maybe or t- why why would I even ask you that?
0: Well, it's really I mean, it's a very reasonable question because not everybody is optimistic. I mean, there's there there's actually a fair amount of fear in, you know, amongst people right now that what I, that we're going to be replaced. I think there's two distinct things, right? Anytime there's a new, something new people are afraid of it. And in the short run, people have fears about this technology that are very similar in my mind to other technologies that have come along in the past, like, say, digital photography and Photoshop. When photography was on film, pictures were pretty much considered, if you had a photograph of something, that was a truth. Well, today it's not because you can Photoshop a lot of things. You know, we're now moving into a world where you can create videos that are perfect likenesses of people that are saying things that are different than they believe. And that's now possible. And pretty soon it will be trivial. I mean, today it's possible within a couple of years or maybe even less, it'll be trivial for anyone to create a deep fake. That's an area of concern for people. And I think those areas of concern will be manageable. I, I think they're all manageable through simple extensions to our existing legal structures and very much like the face this. They'll look a lot like the security threats we face today and they'll be managed. Frankly, we'll use AI to manage it. What I think really scares people at the existential level and when people talk about the impact to humanity, it's this realization that it may be possible to build machines that are much more intelligent than we are, they're super intelligent and are operating at a speed that exceeds our ability to keep up with it. And, and certainly, many people are very afraid of that. I'm concerned about it, but I always thought it was going to happen. I mean, understand, I've had this view that this was the future since I was very young. That we would have. I mean, I've I've got the Singularity book out over, over in front of me, the Curzwell, the I read that book a long time ago. This is an idea that's existed for a long time, and it's one that I have come to understand was coming. What has surprised me is the time horizon. Until last year, I would have thought that we wouldn't see a super intelligent computer until 2100 or something like that. And like I say, that was way beyond my horizon of concern. Now I recognize that that could happen within the next 10 to 15, 20 years, in which case it very much is in the horizon that I in- intend to still be on the earth. Yeah. And then what? And then we'll see. But I, what I believe is that we are creating these entities. Whatever is being created is being created by us. I have lived my entire career as a program manager or a product manager. In other words, I specify what computer systems can do. Ultimately, and perhaps this is naive, but I'm going to hold on to it because it keeps me sane, I believe that we will be able to specify the way these entities behave. And in fact, that comes back to my most important theme, which is the importance of values. The values that companies exhibit will be passed on to the large language models, to the artificial intelligence systems that they create. So the values of these systems will be based on the people that exist. And one piece of solace that I have today, which I didn't have in in December, but I now have, is that this is not going to be controlled exclusively by giant, multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar companies. That because of the nature of this technology, that, open source and the ability to modify the technology and to tune the technology will allow many different organizations to build these intelligent bots, perhaps ultimately these super intelligent bots. So I now think that whatever gets created by by society will not be exclusively controlled by just a few very large companies. But in fact, there will be many, many instances, thousands or even millions of instances of these entities created.
1: And can you steel
0: man the pessimistic case for me? Oh, the pessimistic case is called Terminator, right? I mean, I think that's been really well defined by, you know, in science fiction history. That basically
1: every science fiction movie.
0: Well, I mean, there's many of them. I don't know that any did a better job than Terminator. I mean, you know, using the nuclear weapons we create to destroy humanity and then fighting a battle over time, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was pretty bad history. That, that outcome would not be good. That's not a good outcome.
1: And where do you leave the book? Did you even feel satisfied leaving it where it was, knowing how quickly well, things were changing?
0: I did, because the epilogue of the book was always the last question. And I mean, I have always had that in, in there as that. And, you know, for those who don't know, I mean, a major part of the book is discussing the role that Isaac Asimov has played in building the laws of robotics and the idea. He's incredibly, A, this all happened 70 years ago. He defined the laws of robotics in 1942 before digital computers were invented. I mean, just think about that for a second. Before there were digital computers, he defined the laws of robotics. So what Asimov did and what he left to society is this realization that what we're creating are machines, this is not us being godlike in something like that. But no, we're creating machines that are, in fact, controllable by us. And in order to do that, Asimov invented the three laws initially, and then he added a zeroth law, ultimately. When he realized that in, later in his career that computers could play a big role in guiding humanity, he realized that he needed to add a law that actually said that a robot will not harm humanity or allow humanity to come to harm. And he called that the zeroth law this idea of Isaac Asimov that he had, that we would live in a world of intelligent machines is something that I had always envisioned and believed was coming. Again, I never believed I would see it, but I always believed it was coming. And my favorite Isaac Asimov short story, my favorite story, which I've always been enthralled by, which turns out to be his favorite story, was called The Last Question, where he wrote about the future of humanity and how computing would play a pivotal role in that. And you know, that story is definitely worth reading for anyone that's interested.
1: Where can you get the book, Amazon?
0: You can get the Datapreneurs from Amazon and and you can actually get that short story from his complete short stories, volume one, which is available, which is available. Turns out that there's not many print versions of it. Wow. Well, I appreciate
1: you. I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you welcoming me into your home. Super fun. We might have to do a part two just on AI at some point. Last question I ask every guest, what is the word grit mean to you? When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? not giving up. Bob,
0: thank you. Thanks.
1: That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.